Thanks for tuning in to Mystic Witch. I'm your host, Blue. You can find out more about me at bluejunetarot.com. Mystic Witch is a podcast about magic, divination, and all things supernatural. Witches. Our guest today, Alexander von Beber, is the founder of Academy Gnostique, where he teaches occult philosophy, divination, and runology. Alexander is an initiate of multiple schools of Western mystery tradition. He is also a linguistic researcher who contributes to several reconstructive systems of magic and paganism. Welcome, Alex. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you doing today? Uh, doing amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, very, very happy to be on. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. So what is the magical tool you use the most often, and how do you use it? Oh, yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, probably uh, divinatory tools I use the most. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of reconstructive work, so very important, uh, I guess, to be able to communicate um, with the spirit realm and, and the various other uh, systems I use. So, yeah, I, I think my runes would be the most frequently used tool. Um, but, you know, if we're going to go for the four classical tools, um, very, very partial to my wand. Ooh, can you tell us a little bit about your wand? Uh, yeah, I could. Um, it, it's kind of cool. It's. Um, did you make it by hand? I know you do that. I did, um, but it's, it's not my regular woodwork. I did do woodwork for a while, and I have, so I have, I've had wooden wands. Um, but my current wand is actually made of metal. It's got like a, it's sort of got a steel cylinder running through it that has threads. Um, so you can, so that has like a different, like finials. And then it's sort of a spiraled brass outer casing. And then the inside of the steel cylinder is a, um, a, you know, a piece of uh, nut wood. I think, um, I think it's almond of a, a one year's growth you know, cut it a single stroke. Um, and so it sort of combines all those different elements of, uh, of like um, a traditional grimoire wand that might be like a little smaller and less impressive than what uh, I think Western practitioners really are looking for with, um, with like the sort of resilience of a metal wand. And then, of course, that whole chamber is filled like to the brim with oils and other materia. Uh, relevant to um, to the practice, so, yeah. Oh, and, and uh, there's also room in the brass um, outer casing chamber for scrolls and other items to um, to be inserted into it. Uh, I, I, it. It's actually I don't I did not plan on talking about it, but I love it. <laughs> Do you put petition papers in there? Um, more like what I'll put in there are um, varying different. Um, inscriptions like uh you know those like for different operations uh, a wand might be like uh, specifically made to that operation and then it'll have its own inscriptions on it and uh, rather than doing that i'll put the inscriptions in in uh, parchment scrolls using appropriate inks and i'll have them inside the wand instead of on the wand now sometimes i know that's not acceptable and in which case like i say i'm a woodworker i can make a wand on the fly for anything. 
<laughs> well, you made me that pendulum, which I want to share with everybody. When I was uh, when I was in New Orleans this summer, I taught a couple of classes with Academy Nostique and wanted a pendulum for my divination class. <laughs> and so Alex just made me one. <laughs> and it's really cool yeah. because it opens and you can put something in it. Like if you want to put hair or some other DNA or, you know, an element of some sort. It's really cool. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, you described it. I had to, I had to whip one up. It was, uh, it was Ash, right? Ashwood? Ashwood, yeah. I shouldn't say was. Yeah. I still have it. I cherish it. It's in a very, it's in its own specific box. So, All right. Alex, what is Academy Nostique? Well, Academy Nostique is a, um, it's a school for people practicing, um, magic. And if you want, you know, if, if you want to, um, if you want to study and get, uh, to a place where you're practical with it. And there's so many, so many magicians in new Orleans where we operate out of that there, there's, uh, I think a lot of need for it. And, um, we have a, a whole bunch of amazing teachers who are practical magicians. And, um, I, I mean, I would say, and I've traveled a bit and met magicians and uh, people of different, uh, different interests. And, uh, I'm always, you know, impressed by people where I go, but, um, but the, um, but our, our teachers are, are, are just really top notch magicians who have a lot to show for their work and, um, and they're great teachers. And, um, we're also sort of a community in a way, like our, um, I think people come to magic schools um, looking to touch base with the uh, like the essence of traditions without maybe having to subscribe to um, an initiatic like uh, dedication to it or, uh, you know, there's different people, you know, you don't know, like you go into initiation not knowing what you're getting into almost in every instance. So, um, so there's a lot of people for whom that's a barrier and we have initiates of these different traditions at the school and they're all willing to talk about whatever they're able to talk about, um, which is a lot because most, um, most everything that's technical and magical, uh, has been published or is like available. It's just that like, um, the metrics of success are not evident from self-study like you know when you when you're reading a book and this is this is fun but it's also um it also can be a detriment you you sort of can be distracted by your phenomenology early on you know yeah um so it's it's really cool we um we do a lot of courses and we do a lot of lectures and we host um out of town lecturers and so people get to see a really wide range of practices and um, takes and um, qualified magicians and uh, it's it's been it's been really really fun and really popular it's been a great um, been a great undertaking so you you already touched on this slightly but why else do you think magical education is so important in today's society oh yeah I mean uh well, so the one reason I think is because um, the learning curve is really steep. And um, so I talked about phenomenology 
that we, we see this all the time. And also if I were to put out a, like a Craigslist ad for teachers, I would get a million and one master magicians of the temple, all with different funny hats, basically whatever hat I asked for, you know, if I asked for a wizard, a guy would come with a wizard hat and, you know, like, tell me he's a master wizard. But, you know, the thing that happens is um, when, when we do self-study, uh, that's the first sign of success and the first sign of something other than the mundane world. And we, we tend to feel like that's the end-all be-all because, um, because we're so, cause the learning curve is so steep, we're used to trial and error without results. Yeah. Um, whereas like when you're, when you have a, um, a practice and you have a teacher and you have a space where you can demonstrate things, um, the, the, um, the evidence is right there and it's initial. You're no longer working towards phenomenology. You're working towards, um, capability with it, with that phenomenology, what to do with it, rather than how to just get to that point. So you already start up with a leg up. And um, oh, I'm really proud of all of our students, all of my personal students, especially, because I see them at a, I see them all over town doing amazing things. Um, I, I mean, we don't like, we don't hang on to people. We don't have like these sort of exploitative grade systems where you have to mingle in our social circle for the rest of your life in order to, you know, to get anywhere because uh, we're about results and we're not about stringing people along. So I, I see people who've taken just one class doing absolutely amazing things all over town. That's great. Uh, that's a, that's a testament for sure. Yeah. What are some of the challenges in running a magical school? Um, you know, one challenge, uh, is I guess some, sometimes it's hard to express the significance of a, of a subject and stuff. It's very hard to promote. Um, one example I think is our alchemy program. Uh, I feel like people don't understand the significance of alchemy, like how really cool it is. Um, and I think another challenge is the equipment. I think, uh, and that's something when we deal with all the Western subjects, um, equipment can be can be a challenge. Um, I'm kind of thankful to like the Golden Dawn and stuff for streamlining Western magic into something that's more materially accessible. Yeah. Because um, you know it's like otherwise people would be having to buy all these precious metals all the time. And I still encourage people to get to a place where they can do that. What does the school have to offer, like overall? Yeah, I mean overall, I think. Um, we, you know, we offer a place for people to really just get exposed to um, the mysteries. And, um, you know, I was going to say one thing, too, uh, that's a benefit is um, when I deal with, with, like, when we talk to teachers and when, you know, in my own instructions and other people's instructions, um, they don't always cite, like, the full depth of where their knowledge comes from. Like they don't actually know. You know, when you're an initiate of some tradition, you pick up biases that may have been held by, you know, by great magicians of, of, of yester, yesteryear, you know? Like, mm -hmm. who, who knows if our little peculiar 
Kabbalistic bias for one interpretation of this thing doesn't actually come from Eliphas Levi himself, and that there's some continuity of, you know, of like a thread of actual tradition going back to the masters that people read about and study. So there is sort of a succession uh, or a golden thread that gets passed um, when you are with initiates and when you were to speak on these subjects. Um, and that's something really cool. Another thing that I think is um, transmittable with um, magical education is when you're dealing with real, like really good teachers, their spiritual relationships, like if you desire to do what they're doing, um, you've already got a foot in the door on their spiritual relationships. So, um, for example, um, I, I would never have taken a hoodoo class except that I was moderating one. Um, I actually, I'm from New Orleans, so I actually have some background, like in, like the local folk magic. Um, there's always like things people would do, like Catholic stuff, you know. Um, yeah. I I, I learned. I got my first Grigri from uh, Doctor John, the Night Tripper. Rest um, in power. <laughs> rest in power. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> So yeah, uh, then um, I took this this class. I, I, even though I had been taught about Grigri, I had not really been taught the mechanics. I had just been taught like what it was and given one, sort of knew what was in it, you know. Yeah. Uh, when I took this hoodoo, or when I was there for this hoodoo class, um, I I gained access to a spiritual component. Uh, of hoodoo that, in my opinion, makes it work, because I was never attracted to the subject, because I didn't see the like theurgy or the gnosis in it, you know. Yeah. But it's a spiritual tradition, and um, and by being like having access to the teacher, um, I was able to sort of uh, summon that connection to make the magic work, which, of course, um they gave the students like various options at, uh, or examples of higher powers that people have used historically uh, to access that type of magic. And so even though I don't do that predominantly, like there have been people who needed help with their hoodoo work and I've had a lot of fun doing hoodoo with people. Interesting. <laughs> Dr. John told me I was psychic way before I was ready to hear that. And he was like, this, <laughs> this is why all the psychics you've ever met won't read you. And I, that's, that was a weird thing that he knew. Because, he was a really <clears throat> cool guy, really powerful guy. Yeah. Yeah, I I have no idea how he knew it, but I'd gone to several psychics, and they were like, no, sorry, here's your money back. Like, you know, in college and stuff, and I was like, why? And they were just like, just no. Yeah. So, but, um, what type of classes do you offer yourself? Okay, so I have um, a multiple-stage occult philosophy class that is... Um, very, very loosely based on the three books by Agrippa, which were a major early influence of mine. Um, and, um, but, you know, I throw in other stuff, like um, stuff from Levi and stuff from, um, and, and maybe some more like contemporary practical rituals in that zeitgeist, um, just to, to for, for like function's sake. 
And um, th- those are great classes. Um, the uh, and probably the one of the more popular classes. The other ones I do is divination, and uh, the divination class is really fun. It's very practical. And um, at a certain point, um, and of course, I, I usually take a. Um, if I get consensus from the class, we'll do some very practical divination, and we might call like elementals or something, some such entity, and um, uh, and then we'll do like scrying, and um, basically we'll pick. We have like a we have like a, a bunch of different options. We only have you know x number of classes to cover these options, so we'll pick the ones we're passionate about, and we'll go for it. Um, yeah, and then the, um, and then there's the, the runes, uh, the, the, the rune classes. And, uh, really it seems like a very much a departure from the rest of my interest, but, um, I'm like sort of linguistically interested in magic, uh, like, like our magical language. Will you tell us more uh, about the role of linguistic research in magic and why that's so important? Yeah. So, um, language is um language is a like it's an interpretive art and it it's tied deeply into our cognition so the language that you use d- dictates the way you see the world and the way you are able to communicate um you know like if we if you speak a language other than english the way you petition spirits and ask things um is can be different than if you speak English, depending on what kind of vocabulary you have in that language and, and what words you have to describe it. Um, and then uh, on top of that, um, you can continue to break language down to its most you know minute um, observations because all of the, like I mentioned Kabbalah, Kabbalah has um, very powerful roles for each character of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, runes are the same. Runes have, um, they have a, uh, like a, a syllabary called a futhark, which is comparable to an alphabet. Uh, and then each letter within that, or each rune within that, it's actually called a stave, um, has, uh, poetry and it has, um, all sorts of stuff. And then I've, I've discovered, um, some new source materials where not only does each one have poetry, but it has omens associated with it. It has um, combinations that are fortuitous and not fortuitous um, and various things for specifically for divination. But, you know, you can look around the world and um, if you want to like advance in any system of magic, you kind of have to go for studying the language. Um, I think people reach that gap all the time in like Taoism, for example, where it's like, oh, I studied Taoism, I know feng shui, but now the forward is for me to understand, you know, the individual written characters because there's mysteries hidden within the individual written characters. Um, uh, same thing in Greek, right? Or any other magical language you study, or any other magic you study, you're going to hit at some point uh, a language obstacle. So people should just prepare to study a language. So you had mentioned Kabbalistic studies. Would you like to elaborate on your own hermetic practices? Yes. Um, so I, um, when I first started out in magic, I was really into 
um, well, back before I was even calling magic magic, I was into Eastern mysticism um, through martial arts. And that was like a socially acceptable way for me to get into that stuff. And I was also really into, um, well, I wasn't into, but I was raised Catholic. So at some point, as I was like leaving Catholicism in high school, um, and I was sort of losing the discipline of my martial arts studies, but like very in like internalizing the more mystical aspects of the martial arts studies, I um, I ended up um, coming across uh, Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. And um, those were really influential. They combined a lot of familiar elements. Like I wasn't familiar with Neoplatonism, but I was familiar with Eastern elemental stuff. So I see, I saw the, the, the usages as being comparable and I immediately recognized that they were practical because in the Eastern martial arts usage, it's all immediately practical. Um, so kind of right out the gate, I was sort of trying to apply Neoplatonism practically. Um, and then, you know, as I studied Hermeticism, I think that is the system of theurgy that I use the most. And in those studies, I've done Goetia and um, different types of uh, spiritism and, and taumaturgy. But I think theurgy is really where my heart is where, with the, um, with the uh, Western Hermetic traditions. Um, now, uh, at a certain point, I, um, as I started making discoveries and runes, I started decentralizing um, hermeticism from my magical practice because I realized I sort of needed to hermetically seal my practice for a set period of time to um, to see where the like phenomena were coming from. Yeah. So, um, so I've also done like experimental periods of time where I don't do any hermeticism. Um, but you know, when I was studying that, I was also studying the language and I was studying the source text, particularly of Kabbalah. Um, I was very impressed by Kabbalah, by the way they do exposition of, um, large points that become, that have, that have like sort of become very traditional and taken for granted, but they're really like these sort of, um, analyses of these very minute lines, um, you know, within Genesis or within, um, or within, uh, a rabbinical commentary. Oh. And, and, and so I was like, this is what is missing. Um, I think from, uh, from the serious study of other, um, of other mystical texts, like within the Western tradition, um, it, Rosicrucianism brought all that element into into Western magic, because during that period they were like people were basically hiring rabbis to teach to like read the Zohar for them. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, or like. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Because you use the runes most often, can you tell us a little bit about how the runes relate to magic historically? Yeah. Um, so they, um, they're that's a multi-pronged question, and we, I, and you know, then again, like they, they actually touch in and out of magic many places uh, historically. Um, I, I would say fundamentally, they are magical. Um, 
within the like Norse tradition in the in the epic poetry, um, they are sort of like these building blocks of the universe that are discovered by the principal god of the pantheon. Um, and, and then um, they are sort of the basises behind the powers of the gods. Um, within that cosmology, you just sounded and, um, like EA coetting. Yeah, be, become be a living rune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, but they are. Uh, so, and that's part of like the, the source materials that I've discovered too. Talks about spells that are that are associated with each of the runes um, that come from like this. Um, that basically come from the sound shift period between the like seventh and ninth centuries when people were using elder and younger futhark simultaneously, you'll actually see some of these spells. There's one that's on the rock runestone uh, where they talk about um, the 12th, the, um, this 12th thing, which refers to the same subject matter as the 12th spell in the Havamal, um, which is a, a text from the Poetic Eda. So we can sort of trace these, um, at least this corpus of spells to this period. And then during that period and on that particular inscription, um, they're using multiple languages and multiple systems of phrenology. So even linguistic studies were very important to uh, indigenous practitioners of this stuff. They were not always operating in their own language. Sometimes they were using archaic forms. Um, Yeah, and this is like, that's sort of the major discovery that I'm, I'm, I'm writing about currently. But yeah, so the, the magic has always been there with runes. Um, it doesn't really ever touch the modern magical zeitgeist because of that period. Um, really because of that period just prior to early modern magic and Rosicrucianism, where the importation, like the importing of, um, of magic from the Middle East, from Constantinople, uh, sort of drove out that whole that just that whole genre of magic and, and the um but there are latin manuscripts you know in rome that are that reference the runes um and that have like alternate i think sam block um translated a uh um a uh one of these latin runic manuscripts um and it's like a whole gr- like little grimoire system of almost like um hygromantia-esque system of like astrology Whoa. uh yeah using the runes um i don't that doesn't exactly touch on like the original system but it just shows that people have always been trying to incorporate the runes into their magic um one way or another okay but i really need to pick your brain about the astrology association but we'll do that another time oh yeah we can do that um so the um then there's um there's another thing. There's um, the English uh, magical zeitgeist. Uh, really, th- there's like this whole system of English magic before early modern stuff that deals with um, the paternoster, with King Solomon, and with the runes. And it gets lumped into this type of Cypriana that's um, ascribed to St. Dunstan. And this is like the same zeitgeist of magic that we get the lucky horseshoe from. And it's uh, tied into like the devil and the Smith stories. Um, and so there's a, it's a, kind of interesting because the Sator square is a product of this. It's this very famous palindrome 
uh, which gets referenced by Eliphas Levi in his Rituals of the Sanctum Regnum uh, under his chapter for the devil. Um, so it's like uh, there are threads of it. There are threads that you can follow within the English magical tradition that do actually go back to the runes. And um, so the runes are not irrelevant to modern Western magic, but um, the runes as I use them magically are are not really relevant to Western ceremonial magic. Okay. Well, how do yeah. you, you specifically, how do you use the runes? Uh, so I use, um, I use them sort of religiously these days. It's been a, um, it's been like a, a more reconstructive effort. And I, I try to, um, I try to, um, I try to use them to communicate uh, with the gods of that tradition. Um, it, to, to really to much effect. Um, also, it's been um, through the runes that there are there have been like uh, sort of I guess what you'd call like sort of familiar intercessories that have enabled me to for my divination to work uh, across like um, across traditional bounds. Like the divination is fairly inscrutable, um, and like and it gives me very 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 detailed information. Uh, about people's lives, about um, about things that are to come, uh, about uh, other mystical practices. I was actually, uh, I just had a, a friend in from uh, Mexico who studies um, Zapotec uh, reconstructive religion. And uh, the way I do the rune row, there's like a... There's like I, I usually will use all 24 runes to read, um, and w- sometimes the spirits that are like around a person have a very tip, like very funny or like very um, specific way of communicating that's cool. meaningful to them. Um, and he, my friend was telling me that uh, in Zapotec culture, if you like uh, the word for a settlement was is uh water and hill and so in and like a word for someone who had magical power powers given by nature given by like elemental spirits was um was someone who owned the waters and uh in there like there there's like a quest line the way i read and the outcome of the quest line was the water rune Interesting. Yeah. So this very like specific to his spiritual practice, it shows that um, that he's working towards that very specific thing. Uh, I've had um, usually like the runes they communicate in a way that's very like internally referential. Um, so there are runes that if they are in each other's position, uh, yeah. can be like really really good or detrimental depending on you know which ones because they have a uh, relationship to one another right yeah they do and then there's like these this poetic histories and and um some of these things get lost but then there's so many source materials they're not too hard to find either that was actually my next question uh what resources would you recommend really quickly for someone who's trying to learn more oh yeah about about the runes i I recommend the rune poems and just commit them to memory. And then also um, I recommend learning the languages associated with them. And because even within just the regular rune poems, there are internal references to other runes. For example, uh, 
the Anglo-Saxon rune poem says uh, you is uh, a joy on an estate, which joy in a state are the names of two other runes. And so if the you rune appears, you know, in position with the joy in a state rune, um, then you like you have something there. Whereas I think one of the Scandinavian poems says um, there's a, a rune called drizzle. Drizzle is the ruination of the hay harvest. But there's another rune that means harvest. So if those are in each other's position, it means that the thing that you were looking for is not going to happen. Um, yeah, so you read the rune poems and you commit those to memory. And you can mo mostly throw out and just whatever the commentaries are, the books that people have written. Just I forget them. Just <laughs> Honestly, the biggest thing you could do for yourself in the study of runes would be to just forget everything you've ever learned about it <laughs> and mm -hmm. memorize the poetry. Um, nice. and, and the Poetic Eda, I would say, is the other source material. Um, and there's so many great communities of Reconstructionists, and there are amazing commentators and people all over the Internet um, uh, who can field questions. Um, and then there's classes. And, you know, you if you go, if you're interested in the subject, there are usually people who are proficient that you can talk to in your local pagan community. Well, speaking of classes, what is next at the Academy? Um, the Academy is, uh, we're doing a lot. We're doing some great stuff. Um, Sasha Ravitch is doing a series on Vulcan folk magic, uh, including, um, some very like sought after, um, stuff for, uh, from the Romani traditions. What? Um, yeah. Which she's very qualified to talk about um, <gasps> being. That's exciting. Being yeah, yeah. Is there a way to take uh, it like long distance? Can I Skype in? <laughs> oh my gosh, I would like to. You know, every time we try to do that, though, there's always some technical problem or some kind of uh, some shaky hand or some low batteries or something. It's it's. But you know what? We're getting we're good. We're working on that. Yeah. Um. I. You know, when when she does her um when she does her main course on Balkan folk magic, I would I would really like to to get that material recorded. The next thing we have is um, after that, we have two kind of big events coming up. We have um, Robert Bartlett, the, probably the most eminent alchemist in the world, will be coming down, um, and the Academy will be participating in that. Um, and that hasn't been put on the, on the calendar or schedule yet. It's, I think it's planned for April. And then there's the Necromanti Consortium, which the Academy is participating in with a lot of our teachers. Well, a few of our teachers are going to be presenting uh, some really amazing topics. Um, and, you know, there'll be like some, some big names there, people you're going to want to see. Uh, and then, you you know, they'll get to meet us. <laughs> <laughs> so how would people find you and book classes? Well, um, so right now, uh, enrollment is, um, enrollment picks up again in March. So there are courses are, are closed right now for this season. Uh, but you can check out our Facebook and our website. Um, the website's academynostique.com. 
And then on Facebook, we're Academy Gnostic. We're also on Instagram as Acad Gnostic. And we use the um, we use the English spelling of Gnostic on Instagram. I always thought it was French. Uh, we do use the French spelling, Academy Gnostic. But um, it's the we on uh, on Instagram we do Acad Gnostic, more of like the English spelling. Sort of oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. I didn't even notice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, um, then what? Uh, yeah, I would check out check out the website for courses. And we're going to have services listed soon, too. Um, you could email us. Uh, our email's on the website. And um, we also do, we do events. So if you want to book a, an event in town or if you um, need a qualified teacher on a subject, we're more than happy to travel or, or do whatever. Um, cool. As far as that goes, yeah, like, you know, we have fun doing what we do. And uh, we're good at it, and yeah. So, um, so we can always you can always email us if you need more information. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been such a pleasure having you. So great, so good to have you. Yeah, yeah thank you so much, and it, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, stay, stay mystic, mystic witches. Be sure to subscribe to Mystic Witch on any of your favorite platforms. And you can show your support by contributing monthly at anchor.fm or on our Patreon page. Follow us on social media to hear exclusive audio clips from our guests at Mystic Witch Podcast.